Okay, so welcome everyone. This is the panel on Buddhist counseling. So I will be giving a presentation followed by discussion with Renee Burgard and Elaine Dove and David Lewis and Richard Owings. Okay, so the name is A Buddhist Prototype Model of Buddhist Counseling. And so, so I've, again, my dissertation was on comparing Buddhist meditation from early Buddhism and also um, Vipassana meditation taught by Essen Goenka. I compared that with somatic experiencing from Peter Levine. And then I also, I interviewed six psychotherapists from the Thich Nhat Hanh Order of Interbeing. And I asked them, how do they integrate um, Buddhist meditation with trauma therapy? And so um, those are the two, um, well, well, the methodology I, the methodology I say I used is mutual critical correlation, um, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying comparing and contrasting two different traditions. Um, so one was comparing Goenka Vipassana and somatic experiencing, and another was asking the order of interbeing members, how do they integrate Buddhism and trauma therapy? Um, and so that was the um, kind of the main substance of the dissertation. Um, but then when I got to the end of the dissertation, I, I developed a prototype model of Buddhist counseling um, that's drawing from both the early Buddhism and also um, later Yogacara Buddhism. And so what I'm, what I'm presenting today is um, this model of Buddhist counseling that I developed based on my uh, research. Okay, so acceptance commitment therapy, which was developed, one of the main developers was Stephen Hayes. And so acceptance commitment therapy talks about six core processes that make up what's called psychological flexibility. And then there are six core processes that make up what's called psychological inflexibility. And so someone who has trained in ACT, that's the acronym for it, ACT, um, when, they're, when, when they are doing ACT, they're focusing on these six processes. So when I was doing my coursework um, for my PhD, I took a class at University of the West that was on third wave behavioral therapies. And so ACT is considered one of these third wave behavioral therapies. So the first wave would be um, BF Skinner behavioral psychology. Second wave would be cognitive behavioral therapy. And third wave is um, therapy such as ACT that makes heavy use of mindfulness. And kind of one of the main things that distinguishes it is using mindfulness to have metacognitive awareness, which is a fancy way of saying you can step back from your thinking and observe your thoughts as opposed to being involved in the content of your thoughts. Um, and so anyway, so ACT is one of those. And another one would be mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Another one would be dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, so these are different examples of third wave behavioral uh, therapy. Um, so when I took that class, I, I was very drawn to ACT because I felt right away 
that I could use it to organize the different Buddhist theory and practice that I had learned. Um, it, it gave me a way to organize it and use it in the context of counseling. So because I was doing a counseling residency at the theology school, um, I, I felt like I could use ACT as an overall structure. Um, but what I was doing is um, using Buddhist theory and practice and ACT was just the structure that I was using to organize the Buddhist theory and practice. So what I'm gonna be presenting is um, how I used ACT as a structure to present my Buddhist theory and practice. And that's that'll be the more guts of what I'm gonna be talking about. Okay, so I'll just do a quick run through though of what the six ACT processes are. So um, if you're an ACT therapist and then you're working with a client, the idea is you're helping, you're supporting the client to grow or get stronger in these six processes, which is known as psychological flexibility. And each of the processes has a flip side, which is the psychological rigidity. Okay, so you have contact with the present moment, which is very straightforward. It, it, it means what it sounds like. Um, is the person able to be in the present moment? The flip side is that a person's caught up in thoughts about the future or thoughts about the past. Um, and so they're not able to be in the present moment. Okay, another process is acceptance, which usually means being able to accept or be with sensations and emotions. And then the flip side is experiential avoidance, meaning you want to suppress or escape from or avoid uh, sensations and emotions. Okay, diffusion means you're diffusing from thought. So it means you're aware of a thought happening in your awareness, but you're not bought into the thought. You're not uh, identified or bought into the thought. And then the flip side is cognitive fusion. That means a thought is happening and you've, you've automatically bought into it as opposed to just being aware that a thought is happening. Okay, so values means kind of overall areas of life that are important to you. And I'll, I'll, I'll give more details about it um, as I get into this later, but it could mean like, you know, what are your values around relationships or education or a job? Um, what's your overall ideals around these areas of your life? Um, and so that's what values means. And then lack of values, lack of clarity around um, what your priorities are would be the opposite. Okay, and then committed action means you're able to take action on behalf of your values. So say you have a value around education, um, you want to, um, you want to be educated through the university system. And so then your committed action would be applying to a degree program and getting in the program and doing the program. So that would be the committed action. So the flip side would be, um, not able to take action on behalf of your values or um, taking actions that are causing you problems. Okay, and then self as context in ACT means 
instead of buying into a concept about yourself, you can step back and be more of an observing self or a witnessing self. And then at an even deeper level, there's just this non-dual awareness, this ground of being that you can open up to uh, and be in touch with. And so then the flip side would be that you're attached to a concept of yourself. I see that it's kind of like cognitive fusion, but the thought is a thought about yourself as opposed to a thought about something else. Um, so you could think of that as what attachment to conceptualized self means. Okay, so these are the six processes of act, um, the flexibility side and the rigidity side. In general, the, the idea is that they're all interconnected. Um, it's like an interconnected system. And when you're in a session working with somebody, you might start with one process and then it might lead to another one. Um, you don't necessarily have to work on all six in any given session. Um, but in general, this it's seen as an interconnected system. And, um, and the idea is that you as an act therapists are also engaged in this practice of these um, six processes and that it's more like you're a fellow practitioner helping somebody um, engage in this practice. Um, that's how they like to frame it. Okay, so that's the X structure. And so then now I'm going to talk about how I have um, created a Buddhist version of this uh, as a model of Buddhist counseling. Okay, so so for me, the contact with the present moment, I, I look to the Satipatthana teachings and that's Pali for the four establishments of mindfulness. So you can see here the act process and the flip side is contact with the present moment versus lost in concepts about the past and the future. Okay, and so my Buddhist uh, version of theory and practice is the four establishments of mindfulness. And so what I mean is um, to be in contact with the present moment means to be in touch with the four establishments of mindfulness. And then, so what do I mean? I mean, being in touch with the body as a manifestation of the four elements being in touch with sensations in the body as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. So you're still aware of sensation, but now you're focusing more on, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And that, um, that can also mean that you're aware of emotion, um, but as sensation. Okay, and then aware of the heart-mind. So the Pali word is chitta, which we don't have a we don't have an exact translation into English, but um, heart mind is the closest. So just aware of uh, your awareness, aware of awareness itself, aware of the heart mind. And then for the fourth establishment of mindfulness, I say awareness of the four noble truths. And what that means is you're aware of the body, you're aware of sensations, you're aware of the heart mind within the context of the four noble truths. And so, so this is what I'm saying. Um, contact with the present moment means for me as a Buddhist, 
um, using these teachings on Satipatthana. And then in terms of textual resource from Buddhism, the Samyutta Nikaya chapter number 47 is a chapter um, that has many short discourses on Satipatthana. And so I'm basing this on research from um, Ajahn Sujato, who's a Thai forest monk. And his, according to him, he thinks the Samyutta Nikaya is the oldest of the collections in the Pali Canon. And it's made up of different chapters that are called Samyuttas inside of the chapters. So there's a, there's a Satipatthana Samyutta. There's a chapter on Satipatthana. Um, and that's the 47th chapter. So that would be the textual, textual resource I would point to to uh, talk in more detail about what I mean by Satipatthana. Okay, and so then just to get a little bit more into the four establishments. So this is more practical. So when I'm working with somebody and I'm teaching this as contact with the present moment, so when I say four elements, I'm saying, okay, be in touch with sensations in your body, <coughs> excuse me, as the earth element, which means is it hard or soft? The air element, which means is it moving or still? The fire element, meaning is it hot or cold? The water element, which is kind of cohesion between different parts. And I'm associating this with proprioception, which means awareness of the posture of your body, awareness of your body if it's moving, um, and more kind of a kinesthetic awareness. And within the links of dependent origination, which I'll say more later, um, I'm associating this with the link of contact. So that means contact between a sense space and a sense object, which results in an experience of sensation and that's what I'm meaning by the first establishment. So for the second establishment, I translate it as sensation. Some people translate it as feeling, um, but I prefer sensation because I think it means body sensation as opposed to emotion. And so now it's you're focusing on sensation, but you're paying attention to is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And this... I associate more with what's known as interoception, which is awareness of body sensations inside the body. Um, it's less about posture and movement and more just the quality of sensation itself is what's being uh, referred to. And so, so then I associate that with the link of sensation in the links of dependent origination, which again, I'll say more later. Okay, then the third establishment is heart-mind, which is chitta. And so then I talk about this as awareness of awareness or the experience of being itself. I also talk about this as awareness of stillness in terms of um, your mind. I'm not meaning the body, but awareness of um, stillness in the mind versus movement in the mind. Um, and then also aware of thought versus thinking of thought. So when I say 
mindfulness of the heart mind, that's what I'm talking about is you're, you're getting in touch with awareness of awareness and is there movement or not within the mind. Okay. And then for Dhamma, again, I'm talking about the Four Noble Truths. And um, I'm, as you'll see, as I go through this, I, I'm, I'm really into the links of dependent origination um, as a way of explaining things. And so I draw heavily from that, the links of dependent origination as a way to understand the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so the process of acceptance in ACT, I uh, connect that to the teachings on the six links of dependent origination. And so that means that it's uh, links four through nine in the 12 link chain. So the, okay, so the ACT process is acceptance versus experiential avoidance. And so I am correlating that with the Buddhist teachings on the links of dependent origination and in particular links four through nine. And the next slide, I'll go into detail more with what I mean by that. Um, and I'm also talking about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations and mindfulness of mental formations. And so that means awareness of the body as the four elements, awareness of sensations in the body as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then aware of mental formations meaning what we would think of as emotions. And I, I understand um, emotion as being made up of body sensation and uh, a story or a, a cognitive story. Um, but when I'm talking about the practice of acceptance and I'm talking about mindfulness of mental formations, I'll say, I meant, okay, you're, you're experiencing an emotion See if you can distinguish between how you feel the emotion as sensation in your body versus a story that's going along with the emotion. And in terms of the practice of acceptance, I'm asking for you to focus more on the sensation part of the emotion and to um, let the cognitive story part of the emotion be there, but don't make that the main part of the focus. Okay, so that's so that's what I'm talking about then when I mean um, acceptance, and I'm, I'll I, the next slide I'll get more into the links, um, but again just in terms of scriptural resources from the Samyutta Nikaya, there is a chapter on the links of dependent origination. There is a chapter on sensation, and there's a chapter on mindfulness of breathing. And so I have found that there's um, discourses in the in these chapters that are speaking directly to what I'm talking about here about these practices. Okay, so the links of dependent origination, if we're talking about this one set of links. So in in, in the chapter on links of dependent origination, the Buddha talks about not just 12 link chain, but um, he talks about different links, sorry, different chains with different numbers of links. And one of them that he talks about is a chain that starts with the sense bases and ends with um, becoming. And so that is 
one of the chains that he describes in um, that chapter from the Samhita Nikaya. So you have the experience of the sense bases, which is your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. The Pali word is salayatana, salayatana. Okay, so then the sense bases gives rise to contact. So that's contact between a sense base and a sense object. So that's pasa. That contact gives rise to sensation in the body, which again can be pleasant and pleasant or neutral. That sensation can give rise to craving. And then if you act on the craving, that's grasping. And once you've acted, then there's becoming, that's the embodied results of the grasping. So those are the links um, as the Buddha presents them. So you can think of this as the process of rebirth happening within your single lifetime over and over again, starting with your sense bases, giving rise to contact, giving rise to sensation. And so this is like, you're in this loop, you're in this circular loop that's happening over and over again, basically. So if I was to talk about the, that, that same um, link, that same series, but in more neutral categories, you'd start out with sense bases, you'd have contact, it would give rise to sensation, and then the sensation would give rise to intent and emotion, which is a sankara, which is a mental formation. So craving is a mental formation. So what, what, what I'm saying is in more neutral terms, you have a sensation and it gives rise to an intention slash emotion. And then if you act on it, that would be kama or Sanskrit karma. That would be action. And then becoming would be the result of the action. So when I'm talking about the practice of acceptance, I'm asking people to tune into these links right here. And in particular, I'm asking them to practice mindfulness of breathing, then mindfulness of body as the four elements, then mindfulness of sensation as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and then mindfulness of any intention or emotion that is arising. And if that intention emotion being able to distinguish is it wholesome or unwholesome. So that's what I'm inviting people to practice becoming aware of as a practice of acceptance is that that chain of events. And then to drill down even further, I'm really asking them to practice awareness and equanimity of body sensation. And then awareness of emotion as sensation, as well as a story, which is a perception and then to um, abandon any unwholesome um, intention or emotion and to act on wholesome uh, intention and emotion. Um, but in terms of just pure acceptance itself, it may just mean just working with um, sensation and working with emotion and just doing that, just doing that and nothing else. Uh, and so the idea being that the practice is just accepting sensation and accepting the emotion that arises from the sensation, um, um, but keeping the awareness of the emotion as body sensation so that it stays grounded in the body.
Okay, so that is the um, how I'm correlating with acceptance. Okay, so then when I get to cognitive diffusion, which uh, in the act, the, 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 the wholesome side is cognitive diffusion, the flip side is the cognitive fusion. And so I am correlating that with the first three of the 12 links of dependent origination. So that's links one through three. And in terms of actual practice, it's mindfulness of the heart mind is what I'm asking people to focus on. And in terms of, again, teachings to refer to, again, the chapter on the links of dependent origination and also the chapter on uh, mindfulness of breathing. Um, that mindfulness of breathing is the 16 exercises of mindfulness of breathing that is separated into four groups of four. And so one of the group, the third group is mindfulness of the heart mind. Um, and so that's, that's why I'm um, pointing to these particular teachings. Um, okay, so if I drill down, what am I talking about when I talk about this? Okay, the first three links of the 12 links is ignorance, which is avijja. It gives rise to volition, which is a sankara. And then that gives rise to consciousness, which can be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Okay, so then if I look at it more just in terms of cognitive diffusion or cognitive fusion, I'm saying, um, I'm inviting the person to practice awareness of the heart-mind and then awareness of any intention, emotion that arises in the heart-mind and then aware of whether that intention and an emotion leads to an experience of the mind consciousness as thinking. And then if it does lead to the experience of the mind consciousness as thinking, then I'm asking them to pay attention to are they being aware of a thought versus being carried away by a thought? And so, again, just to summarize, I'm asking them to focus on three links. This is the normal kind of samsaric presentation of the links. This is the more kind of neutral way of talking about it as a practice, which is awareness of the heart-mind. Is there any intention, emotion arising? And if so, um, is that leading to some experience of mind consciousness? Technically, it could lead to any of the consciousnesses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. But when we're, in this context, we're talking about cognitive diffusion versus cognitive fusion. So I'm paying special attention to mind consciousness as an experience of th thinking that's going on. Okay, then the next process is self as context versus self as concept. And so for the Buddhist theory and practice, this is where I'm drawing on the Yogacara teachings on the eight consciousnesses and teachings on Buddha nature. So now I'm shifting from early Buddhist teachings from the Samyutta Nikaya to later Buddhist scholastic teachings. And um, what I have found personally is Trungpa Rinpoche's book, Everyday Consciousness and Primordial Awareness. Uh, I have found that to be the best overall 
introduction to the teachings on the eight consciousnesses that I found. Um, so that's what I refer to as a textual resource um, to talk about the eight consciousnesses and Buddha nature. Okay, so then in terms of actually working with somebody, I would be talking about that I would be introducing them to the eight consciousnesses, basically. So I would be introducing them to the five sense consciousnesses. So I would just be inviting them to get in touch with the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching as the five sensory consciousnesses. And then I would be inviting the person to get in touch with the mind consciousness as the, the consciousness that's aware of thoughts or mental, imi mental images or mental phenomena. And then I would invite them to get in touch with the afflicted consciousness. I mean, it depends on the, who the person is. I might not lead with that terminology because that might freak them out. But um, the seventh consciousness, which is experienced as being a sense, having a sense of a separate self who has identified with the body and mind as self and experiences there being a world outside that's separate from uh, one's experience of being an individual body and mind. And then I would introduce the store consciousness as the store out of the, the consciousness out of which all of the other seven consciousnesses manifest. Um, but also talking about the store consciousness as the place where mental formations are stored as seeds. And then they can manifest as the seven consciousnesses. Um, but also you can talk about mental formations as, well, you, okay, I, you can say that a mental formation can manifest as body sensation. It can manifest as emotion. It can manifest as thought. It can manifest as mental images. And so these are all um, different phenomena that can arise out of someone's store consciousness. So basically my experience of having a body, my experience of having a mind, my experience of having emotions, my experience of there being thoughts, all of these are manifestations of the store consciousness. And so when I'm talking about self as context, I'm talking about these, these eight consciousnesses as what makes up all of these different elements that make up who I am as um, an ongoing process of these eight consciousnesses. Um, and then I would also talk about how you can describe implicit and explicit memory using the eight consciousnesses. And so the idea then that the store consciousness is it can store all of your past experiences as impressions. And then those impressions can manifest and they can manifest as an implicit memory, which may mean it's just manifesting as a sensation or an emotion without a story that goes with it. Or it can manifest as an explicit memory where you remember something, you remember the story that goes with it, you remember all the details. Um, and so I would say those are two different kinds of memories that can manifest out of your store consciousness. Um, and so the technical term in Buddhism would be that the, there are different kinds of mental formations, but if we want to correlate it with um, 
neuroscience and psychology, then we would talk about implicit, explicit memory. Okay, and then I would also get talk to a certain degree about the idea of the mind consciousness can be in touch with more of this witnessing self or this observing self. And then you can open up to that observing self and that can lead to opening up to more of just this experience of a non-dual ground of being. And then um, I would also talk about then, I, I, I have to admit I'm not a total expert on the Yogacara teachings, um, but talking about Buddha, Buddha nature as like an innate nature of um, emptiness and awareness um, and also the potential for awakening and the potential for the sense of being a separate self, this afflicted consciousness of, of that um, becoming uprooted and uh, resulting in an experience of realization or nirvana. Okay. So now we will go to the act values. So again, the act process is values versus lack of values. So for the Buddhist theory and practice, I refer to the teachings on happiness, the Four Noble Truths. And then I also draw from non-Buddhist teachings, uh, the Four Aims of Life from Vedic culture. And so then the actual texts I would refer are the Discourse on Happiness, which is the Mangala Sutta, for the Four Noble Truths, I would refer to the discourse on rolling forth the Wheel of Dharma. And for the Four Aims of Life, I would refer to the Wikipedia entry on the uh, Peru Sharta. Okay, so just quickly then, in ACT, in ACT, when they talk about values, they'll tend to give like a list of different life areas that you ask a person what their ideals are around these life areas. So, th so these would be the examples in ACT of what they mean by values. I, so, so what I tend to do is kind of a combination of using the ACT list and then the list coming from Buddhism or the list coming from um, this Vedic uh, system um, as a way to talk about um, values. So from the Buddhist discourse on happiness, if you if you paraphrase what's in that discourse, uh, these would be the values you could say that come from that. Um, so one is to keep good company, one is to live in a good setting, uh, be skilled in a trade and be well-spoken, be able to take care of your family, help your extended family and friends when they're in need, uh, not to abuse substances, listen to the Dhamma and the Four Noble Truths, discuss the Dhamma, uh, spend time with monks and nuns and make offerings if possible, eventually in one's future lifetime, possibly becoming a monk or nun, uh, and then ultimately practicing the Eightfold Path as a monk or nun to realize Nirvana. Um, you don't have to be a monk or nun, but uh, in general, the tradition is saying that your chances are better off if you are a monk or not, <laughs> but it's a multi-lifetime project. Okay, so those would be the kind of standard Buddhist values. Then these are the Vedic uh, purusharthas. Um, so they say these are the four areas of life 
that you should pay attention to. So dharma means duties, which is similar to like family responsibilities. Artha is more livelihood, like how to make a living. Kama means pleasure, which can mean like sexual pleasure or sensual pleasure. So that's one reason I bring this in because the Buddhist list doesn't tend to explicitly talk about sexuality, whereas the Vedic one does. Um, and then they talk about moksha, meaning spiritual liberation, which is similar to the Buddhist version of what you would think of. Okay, then the uh, committed actions versus not committed actions. So in the from the Buddhist side, I get into the five precepts, the Eightfold Path. And then I also bring in some Taoist teachings on Jing, Qi, and Shen, which I'll just, I'll, I'll say very quickly what that is in the next slide. Um, and then for textual resources, I refer to these books by Thich Nhat Hanh and John Blofeld. So five precepts. Um, so committed action. So it can mean it can mean the you know keeping the five precepts. Um, it can also mean these are five areas of your life that you should pay attention to in terms of your actions because they tend to have very strong karmic charge to them. And so when we talk about actions that you're making in your life, uh, being aware of the five precepts is a very important um, set of actions to measure your actions against, basically. And then if someone wants to formally be Buddhist about it, then we would get into how do you practice the five precepts. Um, I also think that the five precepts could be a way of um, doing an assessment for trauma. If we want to talk about using Buddhism as a trauma counseling technique, asking people about their experience of the five precepts in terms of um, breaking them or having them broken against them, I think the five precepts would be a very good uh, solid way of doing that. Okay, and then other actions would be the Eightfold Path. And so then that there could be a monastic version and then a layperson version, but basically talking about these actions of the Eightfold Path. And then, um, so then drawing from the Taoist internal alchemy, looking at actions. So Jing gets into talking about sleep, exercise, food, uh, and sex. And this is all under the category of nutritive essence. Qi gets into breath practice, emotion as sensation, breath energy, um, the breath energy channels, and experience of energetic fields. Uh, Shen is the heart-mind. It gets into the practices related to the heart-mind and awareness and spirit. Um, and then the Tao is non-dual ground of being or and um, the practice of returning to source. So the, I see this as a similar, this is like a Taoist version of the four establishments of mindfulness. That's how I relate to it. Um, but just in terms of very concrete categories of actions that someone makes, um, there are very concrete areas of areas of life where you want to ask them about their actions um, to very to have a very comprehensive way of um, knowing what their actions are in these kind of kind of very crucial areas basically 
um i mean this this is a whole other thing that could become part of uh the other processes as well um but i just bring it in here just as a way of saying in addition to precepts i want to i want to ask people about their exercise their food their love life um in terms of just uh, tangible actions that they're making and and looking at them as like committed actions or uh, areas of committed action basically okay so just to sum up then i'm using links of dependent origination as the core theory behind the four noble truths i'm using the yogachara psychology as a relational depth psychology I'm using the four establishments of mindfulness as a contemplative structure. I'm using um, collective yogic lifestyle for lay and monastic practitioners. And I'm also um, looking at the goal of metabolizing small, medium, big and deep tea trauma. So I didn't go into the whole trauma therapy zone of it, but when I'm talking about the practice of acceptance, it usually means there's you're helping somebody metabolize a mental formation or a habit energy, and that the level of intensity could be small, medium, or big. Or if we're talking about levels of spiritual awakening, then, then I'm adding the category of deep um, to mean the habit energies that you're trying to metabolize for the deep level spiritual awakening. Um, so anyway, the, my point being, this is just kind of the, uh, summary of the theories and practices I'm using and how I'm putting them together, um, for this Buddhist prototype of, uh, Buddhist counseling. Okay. So that concludes my presentation. Um, I'm not sure how long I went. I probably went over the allotted time, but. Um, Do we, we ask now... questions now or later? Yeah. Yes, now we will shift to the discussion. Uh, so I'll, I'll stop the screen share. And I want to um, first just allow Renee and Elaine and David and Richard um, the first opportunity to respond since they're the official panelists. Um, and so that's how I would like to start. And then um, after that, then it can be a more open um, question and answer session. Um, so let's see, Renee, do you have anything uh, on the tip of your tongue that you would like to start with? Uh, I have many things on the tip of my tongue. I have to organize. <laughs> um, but I want to actually, I could just briefly say something, which sure. is, I, I think you, you asked me to be on this panel to respond in terms of stories with respect to my experience um, from teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction, the John Kabat-Zinn program, mm -hmm. um, my participation in Thich Nhat Hanh's, um, uh, I'm a lay monastic, uh, in Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, and I have a Sangha, I have two Sanghas I practice with, and so on. 
and then also as a therapist. So, um, and I do mindfulness-based and self-compassion-based therapy. So um, as you're talking and as I was reviewing everything before tonight, I'll just say that I think that I, I operate in the field of practice more than theory. <laughs> and I think the reason you invited me is because the way I practice is sort of steeped in all of what you talked about without the academic aspect um, as much. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know how much would be useful to other people because I don't, I actually don't know what people's frame of reference is with respect to John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction. Also, I have, I weave together, he's, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program is a 30-hour program that basically comes from the four establishment of mindfulness. Um, so we learn, we teach people, we spend two weeks bringing people into awareness of breathing and body scanning in-depth body scanning. Um, then we move into emotion. We work with various curiosity and kindness practices and then awareness of our own thoughts. And the formal meditation we do incorporates all that. Um, so that's John's, John Kabat-Zinn's kind of framework. And then I've studied um, Dan Siegel's work for many years and he created something called the Wheel of Awareness, which overlaps with what you were talking about with ACT, the hub of the bicycle wheel model of the wheel of awareness is the presence. Um, I forget the words from ACT, <laughs> but then we pay attention to all the senses, including interconnection. Um, anyway, so many different aspects and self-compassion weaves into it. They all actually intersect with everything you're talking about. So I'm not sure how to make use of a small amount of time for this. Um, but I created something you wanted me to share. I created something called the BET check-in uh, as a way of helping people understand how to do non-judging awareness, which is one of the definitions of mindfulness in John's courses. And after 20 years of teaching hundreds of people, you know, nobody could ever understand that it doesn't mean don't judge. <laughs> so I just, and how to create a pause so that we can become present for a little longer than just a few breaths. So we breathe, we connect to ourselves. This comes from the self-compassion training. You connect yourself with your hands somewhere, which helps you stay in your body. You focus on the awareness of the breath and you can use conscious breathing, you know, concentration, saying words. You check in with yourself, but you first check in with what is my body feeling and you name what you're feeling very briefly. You check in with your emotions. I use the inner weather metaphor now um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but also just weather forms instead of the usual emotion words. And then thoughts, let's not worry too much about that. Just notice, <laughs> notice <laughs> that there are thoughts. And grounding in that allows you to stabilize attention for a little bit longer so that then you can ask your mind what's going on, which connects to Thich Nhat Hanh's taking care of anger as a crying baby, breathing with it until it gets quiet and then asking it what's wrong. Um, so anyway, there's so much, but I, I don't know what's most useful to anyone here, but it's kind of the practical mm -hmm. integration in teaching in these eight week, six week, three week, whatever it is, classes, and then building that into therapy. Right. Um, so, yeah. And you said you also use uh, Don't Know Mind as part of the mindful check-in? Uh, yes, actually, the mindful check-in is the BET check-in. It's also noticing the mind with its negativity bias gets connected right away to what's wrong. 
and in the body scan, that is one of the biggest difficulties for people. Actually, the body scan is very difficult for a lot of people. Many people don't recognize that they're feeling sensations. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting to teach body scanning. And I think it's the most important thing John Kabat-Zinn gave the world, frankly, is actually tuning into the body on purpose and staying there. But to be able to do that, uh, practicing what's not wrong, actually, noticing what's wrong, naming it, what's not wrong as a way of allowing, um, and later what's not wrong as a form of appreciation and gratitude. And then they don't know mind for fear and worry. <clears throat> so you get, you get caught in these future things, worry. Uh, and you can say, am I 100% sure? This is Thich Nhat Hanh's cognitive behavioral therapy in a nutshell. You name what you're worried about or afraid of, and then you say, okay, I'm noticing. I'm, and then actually the longer practice is where am I feeling? That, what am I feeling in my body when I notice what I'm worried about? On a scale of zero to 10, how strong is it and where is it? Then um, you ask, am I sure 100% of forever what I'm thinking is true? And then you notice what happens. Usually what happens is the number goes down with the feeling in the body if you can tune into it. If you want to take it even deeper, you notice that there's a belief that comes from the worry or fear. It has a life of its own. You speak from that place in your body with the belief and say, I believe this worry is going to happen. <laughs> you notice what you feel. Now it's ramped up again, much higher. And then you say, okay, but that's, you know, you might be right. <laughs> so you give permission to the fear. And then you say, and are you 100% sure? And then I tell the story of the farmer and whose horse ran away and, you know, then came back with another horse. And so this is it's sort of weaving together stories and practice, but the don't know mind, the curiosity mind, the what's not wrong, appreciating what's not wrong, which opens attention. It all gets built in actually to the, uh, the BET check-in, but that then becomes self-compassion practice. So then you talk to yourself as if you were a friend. So I'm just sort of streaming through this too quickly, but you connect to yourself, you breathe, you find out what you're experiencing just with bare awareness of body emotions as weather and thoughts. You name what you're experiencing. You can then treat yourself as a friend. So all of these things get woven together and in practice with people in therapy, if they're interested in these practices, I actually incorporate um, simple yoga and Qigong as a way of untying the knots, settling the body so that then you get the space to be able to, to pay attention to what's going on emotionally and mentally. I think that's it in a nutshell. And I can't talk more because we need time for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. I don't know if that's useful. Uh, so uh, I, yes, very much so. That's very useful. Yes. Okay. Um, Elaine or David or Richard, does one of you want to go next? Uh, how about David? Oh, you get your muted still. Uh, let me pass. I want to hear from other people. I'm not sure how well mine integrates, but um, let's see if you have time at the end. I'll do mine. Okay. 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 Uh, Elaine? Hmm. You know what I was wondering about as I was looking at all that or following you with all that was 
where's the Vajra flash? Like the wild, Lord, I knew you're going to start laughing when I said that, right? <laughs> because, because Lourdes knows that I ran around in the shamanic world a lot. We're lots yes. of wild, <laughs> Vajra, flashy, bizarre stuff happens, right? And there's like sudden change that goes in another direction and then a monster appears, right? And so I was curious, John, about like, you know, they used to say that like Zen's not a tantra path because there's not enough tantrum in it. So I'm a little curious about like, how does the tantrum, tantra, vajra aspect link to this? Because I am a vajrayana practitioner. So there's kind of a wild thing. Mm -hmm. That's where the shamanic world lives. This is very wild, indigenous thing where it just, it just kind of happens, right? So I'm curious about like, how do you see that linking to this very solid foundation building? Like this feels like a really complete solid foundation and then I'm like, so where did, where's the plug-in on like Vajra world? Right. What's your thought? Um, I don't have the, I mean, I, I know some Vajrayana stuff, but not very much. But it makes me go back to the Taoist yogic part of it. Um, and so the idea of like, like if I'm working with someone, then I, I, from this Taoist understanding, there's the jing energy, which is like energy becoming matter. And then there's the breath energy, which is working with emotion. And then there's the heart mind, which is working with the thought. And so the jing energy for me means like how much vitality does the person have, right? Like, and so I feel like, like, a person will have a very hard time working with emotions or working with thought patterns and things if they're not comfortable in their body to begin with. And if their body doesn't have enough energy or life force going on in it. Um, so then, so I would look into like exercise or I would look into sleep or I would look into food or just when I'm working with the person is there an ability to kind of have like a, an energetic, a robust energetic like experience basically. Um, and trying to build kind of positive, um, enjoyable versions of that. Um, so the person like, I know like one person, like it was just hard for her to be in her body and talking wasn't helping. So I would just, I took her outside and like we would throw the Frisbee back and forth with each other just to like, get some kind of movement going, right? Um, so that's one thing I'm thinking of is just, I'm, I'm aware how much life energy is there in the situation and then how do I help them uh, yeah. activate that? Um, then in terms of just kind of more like challenging someone or directly challenging them, um, I see that as like, if I'm using the four establishments of mindfulness, it's like, it's like an alignment experience. Like, so for me, it's like, I'm in touch with it in myself. And then I'm trying to be in attunement with the other person on those, on those, well, there's really like three levels and then a deeper context. So to me, it's like, I'm experiencing being in attunement with somebody. And then based on that attunement, like, is there some need for them to like say, for example, oh, they're too much in their head. They need to be, come back to the mm. to the body, right? Or, oh, they're 
they're stuck in one thought pattern and they need to kind of get shaken up out of it a little bit, right? Um, so I guess I'm, I've internalized it more as just kind of this contemplative structure or an experience of attunement I have with the person. And then, so then I guess, I guess I'm just trying to guess what you meant by what your question was, was if there needs to be a shock or a, an invigoration of some kind, uh, I'm basing it on that kind of sense of attunement and like an energetic exchange that's going on. Yeah, I think, you know, the where I'm trying to learn how to plug it in is the interface of like shamanic sort of Vajra energy with with the contemplative system. Because like, for example, I did shamanic work this morning with someone who has been trying to come for a while, right? And, you know, this person has some fragility in their body, but they really wanted to do it. Right? And I'm like, I'm not mm -hmm. going to get that kind of desire because it's a request they've made several times to me, right? And so the person comes in and we just like go in there. And I mean, the, the thing with shamanic work is that the body starts just doing stuff, you know, like her body started throwing off heat and then it started shaking. And then she just started wailing, you know, she's like lying on the floor and she's just like, like she was throwing off like pain, you know, it was almost invisible the way that it was happening, but neither she or I could have predicted that this is what was actually going to happen. All we knew was that the desire of this being to have this experience was very intense. And then it was like calling her, right? And so sometimes I, I wonder like, you know, where the link is between this strong contemplative structure and then kind of these experiences of sort of nature wildness. Yeah. Right? It's there. I just sometimes wonder where the plug-in is or if it's made basically if you just like set it up then if that happens then the person's like ready basically they're sort of essentially prepared because i think that a lot of what happens in trans and shamanic work is indescribable like it doesn't really it doesn't really involve the aspect of like the mind in the same way like mm -hmm. might be awareness that something is happening but language is often not present and it's like an energetic or like body-driven experience, I guess, primarily. And then later when the person comes out, then language might appear later, mm -hmm. right? One of the things about being a Westerner is that we're so tethered to these like linear instructions of X, Y, Z and ABC and, you know, but like, I think I'm curious about how do we come in from the other end sometimes, right? right. I mean, I think, when I'm in the room with someone, I'm mainly, I, I, I have to, I have to do a whole other thing on the Taoism at some point, but <laughs> I'm mainly just like, okay, it's my, it's my Jing, Ji, and Shen energy in attunement with them. And, and the words are, the words are not the most important thing that's happening. It's more just, yeah, the energetic attunement. And then through the resonance, different releases can happen. And then if I'm, you know, if I'm going to bring in the SE language, then that's talking about, you know, the different instinctual drives and having releases happen because of how I'm working with the body sensations and stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, I know titration is a big thing in SE. I can absolutely mm -hmm. tell you titrate in shamanic work. <laughs> this isn't going to happen. Not right. like they're going in, you're going in. It's like the way it is. You know what I mean? Because it's like, the person sort of leaves and then right. something 
happens, right? And so I've always been kind of curious about that. But that's a, a discussion you and I can also have, like maybe separately later about whether you notice what happens when people start to just go, right? Or right. whether you're trying to actually keep them on this side, whether that's right. actually part of the methodology, right? Is to keep them on this side. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So that would be a good, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, cool. So, uh, Loris, you wanted to? Yeah. Uh, you know, the people I work with, I, I work with people for very short periods of time, and they come up with wild experiences. And very often, they just come into my office uh, really mad. I mean, and by mad, I just don't mean yelling and screaming. I mean, my office sometimes looks like an earthquake site. Um, I remember distinctly one man was so mad and I almost got uh, sort of fired from the place where I was working, an agency I was working, because I went uh, to a field with his gun and he just shot the gun several times because he needed that, you know, that, that was, because I see, saw in his anger, uh, the seed of compassion. You see, it's not that anger is anger and compassion is something else. You know, they're, they're just, you know, from a shamanic perspective, certainly from a tantric perspective, they're the two sides of the coin. Uh, so one of the things that has helped me a lot was to move, uh, you know, from a, a kind of framework of mindfulness to a framework of uh, radical acceptance, of working with them with a radical acceptance. Yes, they're mindful, but then, you know, there are ways, how can they work with their historical trauma, for example, and take a position of action against what has happened to them? And, and I think that that is very important. How, uh, how to recognize that anger and uh, fury and these wild kinds of things are simply the nature of the Buddha, you know, from a tantric perspective. So, so that's one thing. So from a theoretical perspective, um, and this comes directly from Trangle Rinpoche, who was my teacher for a while. Um, somehow I, I was in Japan and I met some Nichiren people who said to me, um, you know, they're really not eight consciousnesses, they're nine consciousnesses. And of course, I went back to my Tibetan, uh, you know, monastery, mentioned that, that the teacher got really mad and said, no, they're eight consciousnesses. I said, you know, I don't care. I, I heard this and, and so forth. And then I spoke to Trangle Rinpoche, and he said, you know, uh, this is something that comes out of the Indian tradition, and only a few um, yogi scholars have talked about this, but it is very important because if you're working uh, from a theoretical model of eight consciousness, you don't get to the ninth consciousness, which is the consciousness that is free from karmic imprints, never have had any karmic imprints. So you have the, the sense consciousness, you have the mind consciousness, you have the afflicted consciousness, you have the alaya vijnana, and then you have this consciousness, which is essentially Buddha nature. And, and, and I think that that takes you to another level in terms of, of the kind of work that you do. I'm very impressed with what you're doing. It's just that 
I think, uh, I think some shamanic uh, input into what you're doing and, and also how do you work with a model like this when there's no time or where the time is such that when the people come in, you know, there's, uh, you know, to talk about self-compassion is to talk almost about justice, to talk about a problem that they have is talk about historical harm that has happened, uh, to talk about not have, having a weak life force is having to do with all these things that they carry and, 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 and are, but, but that's just some comments. So thank you so right. much. Um, yeah, in actual practice, it's like just intuitive and I'm drawing from whatever happens. Like <laughs> I'm not trying to do follow a plan, so to speak. Um, but anyway, okay, so uh, I just want to go over to Richard. So Richard took my class at Naropa where I was basically teaching this for a semester, um, teaching ACT and how to integrate it with Buddhism. And then as part of the class, they um, would practice, they would have practice sessions where they would do practice counseling sessions. Um, and so I was just interested then in, in Richard just sharing his experience learning this and trying it out. Um, and I guess now also just me giving this presentation now, it's kind of more polished presentation, but um, but whatever whatever you would like to share uh, based on the class or what I've said this evening, whatever you want to share, Richard. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the, um, can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, I want to apologize. I had to fly from Southern California up to Minnesota today for a family emergency. So I was going through the airport and getting bags and traveling. That's why my I had my image uh, on the screen for such a long time. But um, at any rate, yeah. So the last hour and a half, I had a 15 week course um, that covered all of this material. So in depth. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm more familiar with it than everyone or less familiar with it. Uh, because I'm certainly not a therapist, and um, I, you know, I do teach meditation uh, in the uh, Tibetan uh, tradition, um, and uh, in the Kagyu and the Shangpa uh, traditions. But uh, I, I don't make myself out to be a therapist at all. So when I uh, when I work with students. Um, anytime that we get to a point where it seems like they need to have uh, therapy, I refer them to somebody else uh, and I, you know, I don't work with them. So um, any rate, um, so I, I see that I'm in a group of therapists here and I don't want to make out that I am um, and I don't have that kind of knowledge, but uh, with my uh, uh, you know, I've been meditating for over 50 years. I, I started in the early 70s in the um, uh, Hindu tradition and then switched over to uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism a number of years ago. So I'm very familiar with in meditation and Buddhist philosophy and, uh, and some of uh, Hindu philosophy too. So in, in learning the act 
you know, I knew nothing about ACT when I first took the course and started working with my fellow students, my cohorts, uh, and working with them in counseling sessions. Um, so uh, really when I, um, and, you know, trying to use the ACT model while being in a session with someone was very difficult for me. But uh, John recommended to not worry about that and then just use the system, the ACT uh, system after the session was over to, um, you know, take notes for the session. Um, which is what I did and it was a lot easier. But for me, uh, I very quickly found that it was easier to use uh, the Buddhist um, reference to this whole model as opposed to the ACT reference. Um, just because you know I, I wasn't familiar with ACT at all. I wasn't really familiar with the Buddhist uh, perspective, you know, uh, very, you know, using ACT. Um, when I work with meditation students, it's, um, you know, using shamatha vipassana. Uh, I, my practice is mainly Vajrayana practice, which I don't usually uh, use with students, especially beginning students. Um, but Mahamudra, Dzogchen. Um, so I, but I, I noticed that for me, not being a therapist, that using this model with my cohorts in a, in a, um, a counseling session was very different than working with my meditation students. And it wasn't as easy to use the, uh, the six-pronged uh, act slash Buddhist um, model working with meditation students. You know, it's, it's with, usually with uh, using, working with meditation students, it's much more um, fluid, I would say, and mainly because I work mainly one-on-one -on -one with students. Um, so, but I, I really took to the, the, the Buddhist aspect of it, of the, the Buddhist aspect of the act, uh, hexaflex, uh, pretty easily, actually. I don't know. Um, John, what is it that you would like me to, I'm not quite sure. I, I maybe you should throw in that my undergraduate degree is physics also. <laughs> so, um, you know, the whole um, quantum mechanics and Buddhism uh, work really well for me. I'm very familiar with both of them. And, and um, um, yeah. Well, you, so. and, you and David then have a lot in common because David uh, is a trained mathematician who's also in the uh, Tibetan tradition. Um, and so he, I, I see him perking up when you were saying that. <laughs> yeah, you and I should talk. Um, I've often... <laughs> thought that there's a, the problem with Tantra and Vajrayana, I'm a Tantra Vajrayana practitioner, sort of, uh, doing a long time, I don't know how good I am at it, but the problem is that there's, it's such a, it's such a, a, a 
culturally alien to most Westerners. It's, it's hard to get through the trappings. And I've often thought, this is just a quick comment on physics and mathematics and so on, that that seems to be a, a Western container tradition that might might be an alternative in some ways, a way to get through to Westerners. We're so steeped in um, conceptual models and conceptual containers, um, you know, because go into quantum mechanics and it is very conceptual, it is very scientific and mathematical, but it also dissolves, it just slips through your fingers. You can't get your mind around it anymore because it's so alien to ordinary experience. And I've often thought and done a little thinking the work in that direction. There are some possibilities there for a tantric kind of experience, but in a Western using those Western concepts, Western scientific concepts. Because usually science is like clashes with meditative, with the esoteric, and so on, because it's, what's the word? colonizes everything and takes over. It, it, it assumes that this one narrow band of experience is actually the whole picture. And having made that assumption, uh, it's completely stuck in a, Can I say something to, when you're finished, David, I'd like to say something to you. Oh, go ahead. No, go break in, please. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, but for me, um, there is a difference between two Western people. You know, um, there are us uh, who live middle class, even if we're immigrants and, and so forth. Um, but there are many of my friends who have their indigenous backgrounds their Afro-Caribbean backgrounds even closer to their everyday lives than me. And therefore, uh, some of the tantric Vajrayana approaches are not as culturally alien. As a matter of fact, they're less culturally alien than something like ACT. And I'm not saying that you cannot use ACT with, with people. I think it's, it has incredible applications. And I'm very impressed with what John does. Uh, but some people, and it, certainly most of the people I work with, uh, you know, come from, from traditions uh, that some of them have uh, connections with the shamanic traditions of their countries. One of the things that I'm doing right now is utilizing, I don't know how many of you, I think uh, Elaine knows this and some of the people who were at the conference a couple of years ago, is the appearance of La Santa Muerte, the holy death as a deity in, you know, immigrant and border uh, peoples. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a deity. And uh, I am utilizing some, interestingly enough, in our monastery, uh, there have been a lot of people coming with immigrant backgrounds uh, from Latin America, 
some of them with very strong um, indigenous groups. And, uh, and I am using La Santa Muerte instead of some of the wrathful de deities to teach meditation. And uh, <laughs> it has not gone well in my monastery, but they seem to be able to, <laughs> to relate to it more than to Tara or Avalokiteshvara. Or, or something like that. So, so I think there's a big difference uh, between the various populations. But I agree with the other stuff you're saying. Well, I think you you illustrate perfectly in the sense what I'm saying, which is that your own cultural background from birth, childhood, is so important. And if the context you're practicing in isn't in some way conciliant, it doesn't resonate with that. You've got a problem to start with, it's, it, and it can be overcome. Uh, to a certain extent, I've overcome it as a mathematician scientist. How in the world I ever get into Vajrayana? I mean, sometimes I'm what? But but it works. It works very well for me. But I look around, and and not many people can make that leap. You know, and and they are. You have to come to pe come at people with people in a way that's consistent with their background. So you you know you, you switch deities you switch to the form of the deity that they're familiar with the form of the energy the form of the underlying energy concept I, I think that's great you know yes the Tibetans are not going to like it because it doesn't it's inconsistent with their cultural assumptions but my goodness that's a great illustration but you know what about people who are you know raised in urban, academic, scientific culture have none of those connections at all. You know, and any hint of it, it's just like, oh, go away. It's all woo-woo stuff, you know, you're, how do you get through to them? They don't have, they don't have any of that. Shaman. But may, maybe we should disrupt <laughs> a little bit some of that. That's, but anyway, well, no, fine. I agree with you. Should, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Renee, did you? Yeah. So I just want to um, weigh in that uh, anything tantric is alien to me. <laughs> I've never intersected with anything tantric or shamanic. There's something in me and in my background that just averts from it. And it's a mystery to me. It's, it's fantastic to hear you all talk about this, actually. Um, but even my friends in my sangha who are shamanic oriented and are living in Nepal and practicing with Munya Rinpoche and all that. I, we practice in Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition together. We don't really talk about the other world that they're in so much and it doesn't, I can't grasp it actually. And my work, I mean, I come out of a sort of science background and um, without going into my whole background, but I've ended up teaching for Apple computer and Google and I sit in an office in Los Altos, California, and I have, you know, 50 different clients, many of whom have been seeing me for years to deal with bipolar conditions and trauma and anxiety and depression. And the science people in those, those places where I teach, the tech organizations, I'm very scientific. So my classes have succeeded over time because I come at it from a very down to earth, not woo woo perspective. I don't talk too much about energy moving. And um, I get away with it now because of Jigong. But 
so that intersection of like what John Kabat-Zinn did is what makes it possible to bridge all those people who are oriented in science and open them up a little bit to an inner world. And so it's, I think I see it as a stepwise thing. And so, you know, everything is going to be accessible to different kinds of people. I work in a world where what I do uh, makes sense to them, I guess. So I don't even know how to make sense of what you all are talking about because I'm so different, right? <laughs> anyway, I wish there was more time because. Um, That's a fascinating subject and an important subject. Um, and well, I think everybody, any, anything that can, you know, just, just to break the crust of your reified world experience, you know, that things are solid, independent, you know, things, just to break that crust in any way at all is to open to in a revolution, but you've got to do that one way or another. In Tantra, I mean, there's a number of ways to do that, and, and Kabat-Zinn's another way of doing it. Although I think Kabat-Zinn himself found that he didn't have a second act. He tried to develop a second act for decades and never succeeded, you know, because all he was was that breaking that crust and then where do you go from there? Okay, well then go off to a saga and, and practice there, but I'm done with you. How much I, I haven't got much offer beyond that. So that was kind of a sign. Well, I think the Buddha gave, gave 84,000 teachings the last time I heard. Uh, so I think there are teachings there for people of different backgrounds, capacities and everything. And what works, works. Uh, and, uh, but I think Tantra gets a bad rap, uh, you know, in many uh, places. And, uh, you know, and I, and I think it has a place. And uh, a lot of people are also secret tantrists, you know. I have uh, some people who now are very much interested in the work I'm doing on La Santa Muerte. And they're people who were academics like me at, the, I won't mention the university. Uh, you know, actually here in Claremont, and um, but they wouldn't be caught talking about this in, in public. Uh, but it, I think, uh, Renee, you know, if what you're doing and doing it with compassion and doing it with, uh, you know, from a dharmic perspective, it's what works. That That is important. The same thing of what Elaine is doing and David and everything. We cannot all be, you know, working with La Santa Muerte, you know, it just, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. And so, um, so I think that's the same way that John has developed uh, this practice, uh, which I know I actually referred him a client several years ago uh, and uh, he's worked with him and I'm very, very impressed by the, what he has done for and with uh, this particular client. So, and I'll, I'll just throw out that there's really nothing more woo-woo than quanta mechanics. Um, you know, it's, it's not anything that you can get your hands around. There's nothing solid about it. It's, uh, it's just like emptiness of 
phenomena and self and time and, uh, you know, Vajrayana. And um, it, it just kind of brings us all back to the same place. Um, so anyway, I'll just throw that out. No, I, that, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, that's the observation I was trying to make. It may be a way for Westerners, a certain, a certain segment of Westerners, maybe the scientifically steeped to break through because it does break that crust of inherent existence that stops you from getting anywhere. Well, it's another way, it's another approach. It's another approach to it. It'll work for some people and not for others. Go ahead, Renee. Oh, you gotta unmute. Um, so I keep thinking about what you were talking about, Elaine, and I have no clue what you're really talking about, but I, I noticed that you do psych psychedelic assisted work. I don't. I'm actually on that oh, panel. Oh, she is the devil's advocate on yep. uh, the pitfalls of psychedelics. Oh, yes, I see. Yes, because, because I do work with people who are using them. I do work with people who are using them. I am sort of a trip sitter a little bit, but I don't personally administer or use psychedelics myself, but increasingly people are asking me to be their accompaniment while they are journeying or after they have journeyed with like a ketamine treatment, this kind of stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. and John actually stuck me on that panel somewhat reluctantly because I said, well, I don't use psychedelics. I shouldn't do that. And he's like, no, that's why I want you there, which is such a Buddhist approach. It's because you don't use them that I want you there. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to, so I have one client who is a Google engineer who has explored, explored every psychedelic you can think of. And actually he went into a one and a half year depression. He has bipolar condition. He went into a one and a half year recalcitrant depression and we've been seeing him through this and he brought himself out of it. Long story short, with taking with vaping some five MAO, you know, synthetic frog serum, and we did it on together while we were on Zoom, <laughs> while yeah. listening to the music that he likes to listen to, and he was connecting it to his ayahuasca experiences and everything else, and he actually brought himself out of his depression. It's in and out, but it's the one thing that actually worked for him. And you know, when you're talking about so the wild experiences, I mean, what the his ayahuasca trainers came to my office to interview him with me and so i have some like i'm getting connected to some of these people because a lot of people i know here are doing a lot of exploring ketamine therapy all the different kinds of things psilocybin etc and um and it, to me they access something wild when they do ayahuasca for example and i don't know if that's connected to what you're talking about when you talk about the sort of wild experiences that are beyond words that are really um very transformative for people. I mean, it, that's what people are trying to get to with psychedelics, that they're trying to break out of ordinary reality, for sure. Um, you can do it without the drugs, though. See, that's the thing. That's kind of what shamanic work is, is that you can mm -hmm, do it with mm -hmm. drugs. Advanced forms of Tibetan practice. You can actually mm -hmm. things. So you don't always need the, the medical assist on it, I mean, I think that like the the medicines are a tesseract, memory wrinkle in time, that book where it's like, whoop, that's kind of like that. You know what I mean? And that, that quality of suddenly like getting a wrinkle in time and doing a tesseract is kind of a vodka quality where you make a jump, a 
like a leap into like another reality kind of quickly. And then you're like, whoa, where am I? Right. That kind of thing. But I mean, I think, David, what I was thinking about is this book. I could find my copy or find this book by Bokar Rinpoche called The Day of a Buddhist Practitioner. And like the chapter on how a Buddhist watches television is one of the most trippy things out there. Like if you really follow instructions and you try to watch television like a Buddhist, you're like, whoa. And so I feel like to kind of get that, I don't know, rational stuff, I think humor, humor is really helpful. And then things like that, it's like, oh, just try this one chapter. And then people are like, whoa. Or like, if you ever read that little book, Dogzan, which is about Dzogchen, but it's like about meditating on an open face sandwich with an open face, like stuff that's like really, really humorous. Like there's absurdity and that kind of can also break that, I think, right? Because, you know, especially now, I don't know if shocking people is a good idea. I think we're all kind of already there, like all the time, you know what I mean? So now I'm like, well, how about humor? Humor feels like maybe one of the ways to like, maybe yeah. like evaporate something or, or open yeah. up. Yeah, humor, humor is about breaking that, um, those ordinary assumptions. The humor is like, violating your assumptions is like leading you there and then whoa no hitting you in the other hitting you from behind or something like that or turning you around and breaking that crust i keep using that word that hard crust of ordinary experience being solid independent inherently existent unchangeable nothing i can do about it break, break through it one way there's all these ways break through that's in some ways the most important step once you've broken through it you're at least open to possibilities i think movement and humor are two quick ones you know because yeah. yeah. felt in christ we call that rigidity habits right habits like the habits of holding your body the habits of your movement and so a quick way is also to like take someone into movement they wouldn't normally do mm -hmm. that quickly starts to reorganize things around I mean, we like there's a certain amount of novelty that is crushed, and I keep seeing a pot pie and like poking the fork through like the top, which I did all the time as a child. Did anyone do this with pot pie? You're just like, is it done yet? Yeah. So, right, if you poke it too soon, then the pie collapses. <laughs> but you know, whatever. So then you get better at it. Like you can, you can keep like poking the pie a little bit. And there's like a little bit of humor. I don't know. I feel like that's maybe something that that we could infuse infuse more right because we're we've been in such serious times for the last few years and i feel like we need fire and absurdity and just sort of things that turn around and go backward for like no reason to, mm -hmm. to listen to this out of this collective like oh what's happening mm -hmm. you know drumming is another possibility uh, i'm kind of liking, kind of liking the buddhist comedy club <laughs> Uh, Buddhist stand-up, yeah. Yeah, so Buddha, Buddha was walking down the street and then turned into a, uh, I don't know the ending of it, but. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Exactly. Don't know the uh, Maybe we can start a business right now, the Buddhist <laughs> comedy club. Yeah. But like the whole session is you just lead people down the path of the absurd, but like in a <laughs> way, just keep changing directions. 
I could see it. That could actually be really fun for people. And for us, actually. Um, so we're getting near the end. We're, we're kind of gone over. Uh, so any final uh, comments or remarks, Renee? I, I just wanted to sort of add in something that to me brings some, some of it back to the body movement. So I think that um, bringing people into their body and, and offering their ways through practice to stay there and be able to keep their mind there enough to really settle and all of that. Um, but untying the, I, untying the knots in the body to untie the knots in the mind and heart is kind of an approach that I have. And um, there's a, a young monk in uh, Plum Village, Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, named Brother Insight or Brother Montue, who now has a Jigong channel on YouTube, which I now actually use in my Apple classes. <laughs> I use it for my individual therapy clients. I use it in my office myself. And it's just doing some of those simple Jigong movements actually starts to free people and settles people. And you can do so much more than uh, through that. So I just wanted to just add that in. So, anyway, for what it's worth. Cool. All right, I know Elena has a um, dance performance space uh, where she lives. Uh, so I think we have, I think we, we have, we have Buddhist stand up and uh, dance and uh, <laughs> other things Not coming together. Time. Yeah. Not time if you're like super tantric level, right? I don't know. Yeah. How <laughs> One could aspire to it, and then the failing would be beautiful. The failing at yes. it would be yeah. Well, to fully embrace the failure of Buddhist comedy together would be like its own path, I think. And Lourdes, you went to clown. You went to clown school, Lourdes. Yeah, I actually the only reason I was able to get my PhD is because I registered in the clown school next to the university. <laughs> And uh, because I, after attending the first uh, few weeks of the doctoral program, I said, I can't deal with this. So the New York Clown School was about two blocks from NYU, where I did my doctorate. And, uh, you know, so I, I, you know, I used to go with my clown suit and everything to classes. And uh, only one professor ever protested. The others, you know, were okay with it. So anyway. So I just, you know, that at the time clowns were thought to be funny. Now people have some problems with clowns. <laughs> and my former husband even had a problem with clowns. That's not, that's not why I divorced him. But anyway, <laughs> we were going to an anti-war de demonstration. And, and I said, I'm going to go as a clown because I think I have less chance of being arrested. And he says, don't be stupid. That's how he used to deal with me. So he went normally, quote unquote, dressed. And I went as a clown and he got arrested and I just walked away. So after that, he didn't say anything. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs>